Mark chapter 6. Continue in our series through the Gospel of Mark, which has primarily been an evening series, but under the current conditions, it has been moved to the morning. Our text for this morning is Mark 6, verses 7 through 13. And what we have here in Mark chapter 6 is really um, a series of episodes that show us the realities of ministry that Mark puts together for us. And I would just remind you of last week, we saw the reality of ministry and facing rejection. Jesus is rejected at Nazareth. And then today, we will see the reality of ministry being sent on mission, being sent on mission. Follow along with me in the Word of God. Verse 7, And He called the twelve and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. And He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not to put on two tunics. And He said to them, Whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you, and they will not listen to you when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. And they cast out many demons anointed with, and anointed with oil, many who were sick, and healed them. Father, we pray that you would... Illuminate your scripture to our hearts, to our minds, that your spirit would apply it, and we would understand it, we would live it. In Jesus' name, amen. Mark does something interesting throughout his gospel, something that we've, I've called the Mark sandwich. He will begin to talk about a certain event, or he will record for you an event, and then all of a sudden he will insert something right in the middle. He does this right here. This is a Mark sandwich. Because you would notice that we have Jesus sending out the 12 apostles. And then the next section is about John the Baptist dying. Well, that will be next week's message, but that's a reality of ministry, preach to get killed. But you would notice here in verse 30 that the apostles returned to Jesus and told them all that they had done and taught. So what we have here is one of Mark's sandwiches. And we're going to consider the first part. We will follow the sandwich, so next week we will consider the death of John the Baptist and then bring back the end um, after that. But it is important that we understand this because it shows us the theme that Mark is seeking for us and his readers to understand, and that is ministry is going to cost you. I want you to notice here in verse 7 what we can see about Jesus what I've given you the heading, the master's mode of ministry, verse 7. We read here that he called the twelve. Just a bit of a reminder that who these twelve are. I'm not going to name them all, but you can go back to chapter 3 and look at verses 13 through 19 where we have the names of all of the twelve. We call them the disciples. These are his apostles. We would recognize back in chapter 3 the purpose of Jesus' calling. Where Mark records for us that he calls these twelve so that they would first be with him. Then that he might send them out 
to preach and have authority to cast out demons. So Mark tells us this in chapter 3, and now we see it actually happening in chapter 6. So there's something that took place between chapters 3 and 6. This is the training ground that they received. But it's important to note this in the calling of the twelve. That Jesus does not call the qualified. He qualifies the called. Jesus calls the sinners. Jesus calls the strangers. Tax collectors and tax evaders. Fishermen and fools. In order to shame the wisdom of the world. This twelve is a motley crew. It is, no, it, is, it is surprising that Simon does not kill Matthew. He is a zealot. Simon, or he, yeah, Simon's a zealot. Matthew's a tax collector. They're enemies. No, they're brothers in Christ. So this ragtag crew that Jesus assembles to shame all of the world, these are the men who turn the world upside down. And we have a peek into their first mission. The events of chapter 3, Chapter 4 and chapter 5 show us their training ground. Jesus doesn't immediately call them and send them. No, he must first train them. Before they were sent, they needed to experience the storm. Before they preached, they needed to experience and hear the parables. Before being empowered, they needed to know who holds the power. Before they were ready, they needed to witness rejection. And now the time has come. So it's as though in this passage and in this verse, Jesus is looking at the 12 and he's saying, come here. It is time. It is time. The things that you have witnessed, the things that you have been experienced to is your training ground so that I might send you out on mission. You have observed, you have witnessed, you have heard. It has been granted to you the secrets of the kingdom of God. But remember what Jesus says even in the parables. As though he looks at them and says, but I told you that the secret is not to remain a secret. Set the lamp on the stand. The time has come. You will go and you will be heralds of the kingdom of God. No doubt these 12 are nervous. No doubt they are nervous. You remember the first day of, you know, you're in your working career and you get that first opportunity where the boss gives you a task or a responsibility that you're supposed to take care of on your own and your legs are shaking. You might be a little nervous. You're thinking, I hope I don't screw this one up. There's a lot riding on this. That might begin to relate to a little bit of how the apostles are feeling in this moment. Maybe you can remember one of the first times you were asked to lead a Bible study, facilitate a study. Maybe you had that first opportunity to handle the Word of God publicly. And you wrote out every single word you were going to say and all the exclamation points and the dots. And you, just had, you were completely scripted because you thought, I don't want to mess up whatsoever. And you still went up there not sleeping the night before, legs shaking. Nervous as all get out. I remember years ago, I was early on in ministry, and I hadn't even gone to seminary. I was halfway through my undergrad, my Bible, stu- my biblical studies, and I was meeting with a group of pastors on on Monday mornings, and 
I'm the young guy, right? And so all of these other pastors seasoned in ministry um, would get together and they'd bring the word. And it was everyone's opportunity that they would share the message. They would bring a sermon. And then we'd pray for a while afterwards. Well, I was fearful that the day might come that they would ask me. And they did. I remember being asked that time, brother, will you bring the word the next time we gather? And I wanted to get sick. I wanted, I wanted, I just, I was praying that I just would not be able to. It was terrifying, the nerves. The nerves to bring a sermon, not to just the people of God, but to bring a sermon to the pastors. Who am I? So I gave him a message from 2 Corinthians 4. Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. And I shook and I was nervous all the way through. It's okay to feel that way. It's certainly nerves let us know that we're alive. No doubt the apostles are nervous here as they're given their first public task. This is the master's mode of ministry. But what he has done for them is that he has called them, he's trained them, and he has equipped them. Another word for that is called discipling. Jesus is discipling the disciples. So he calls the twelve, and then we see to send them out two by two. The word here to send out or sent out is, this is the word from which we get apostle. Apostolo is the verb, apostle being the noun. Two by two, this was a common Jewish practice. It's a good principle for going out on any type of mission, There's accountability. We would read in Ecclesiastes that two is better than one. Two is safer. Two is stronger. Two is smarter. And Jesus also knew, as Jesus is a man, Jesus was saturated in the Scriptures. He was the Word, and He learned the things, and He has always been, but He knew Deuteronomy 17.6, where it takes two to validate the message, two to bear witness to a message. It is to be believed. So as he would send them out two by two, it is for their own safety, it is for their own strength, and it is for the validation of the message that they're going to bring. It is worth listening to what they are to say. So we see here that the master's mode of ministry is to disciple and then send. Jesus doesn't call the twelve to be with him just to stay with him all the time. They are called to go. They are called to be sent. They are trained. They are equipped. They are sent. But that's not enough. No, Jesus also there gives them authority. Verse 7. They are given authority. What do we see from this? They were empowered by Jesus. This is part of the apostolic authority that they were given. It was given directly to them by Christ. We must understand here, even seeing in them, that power, their power does not come from within, but from without. It is a delegated authority that they received. All authority is delegated authority, actually. Any sphere of authority that anybody has is authority from God down. Jesus delegates authority to the twelve, showing them where the power lies, and it is in him. In him. 
So what we see here, even from verse 7, is the master's mode of ministry. He trains, he equips, he sends, he empowers. And we know from verse 30 that the mission is successful. None of them die. Not yet. And they come back. And they tell him all that they had done. Because they have been trained, equipped, sent, and empowered by Jesus, this ensures that their ministry will be successful. 100% successful. Because Jesus' word going out will accomplish that for which he has purposed it. That doesn't mean that they aren't going to face trials and difficulties and, 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 and times of, uh, as even John read earlier, of, of, of utterly despairing of life itself. No, that might be the part of the master's ministry purpose for them. For you, much of what we face and sometimes the rejection and the difficulties is for our own development too. So now as we would consider the, the prohibitions that Jesus gives here, I want to pause first before moving on and I want to note a few things about this passage that will help us to understand it, I believe, more faithfully. We need to be mindful when it comes to the interpretation of this passage and many other passages. First, we must understand, where are we in redemptive history? We are before the cross. So as a result of that, this will influence the scope of the apostles' message. They're not going to preach a crucifixion yet. It hasn't occurred yet. But they are still, they are still sharing the gospel of the kingdom and repentance. So we are before the cross we are also before the permanent indwelling of the Holy Spirit, which comes at Pentecost. This comes in Acts chapter 2. So this makes a difference. Why Jesus must give this authority to them because we remember in John, as Jesus says in John 14, 16, that he had to go so that the Helper would come. Third thing we must understand in redemptive history here, we are still half a century before the Spirit's completed work of the Holy Scriptures. Before the Apostle John pens the last line of the book of Revelation, the Spirit's work of inspiring the Word of God, the Holy Scriptures, the New Testament, has not occurred. So that's why you oftentimes will see signs and wonders and miraculous as verification and authentication of the apostolic Word being proclaimed. We are now on the other side of the cross, though. With the permanent indwelling of the Spirit and the completion of of his inspired work, the Word of God, the New Testament. We recognize that we stand upon the shoulders of the apostles and those that have come before us. We stand on the shoulders of the apostolic mission, but we recognize as well that their mission is unique. Their mission is unique, it is temporary, and it is the foundational part to the building of the church. Paul makes that clear in Ephesians. Chapter 2, Jesus Christ, the cornerstone. The apostles are the foundation. And we are building upon that. So a few things that we must note here. We are not to usher in some new apostolic movement. Nor do we recognize that apostles exist. They did exist. They do not anymore. If you meet somebody who tells you that they are an apostle, just walk away. I have never met a humble person who claims to be an apostle. Furthermore, new apostles are just old apostates. Second thing I want you to be mindful of with this passage, when reading narrative such as this, seeing everything as prescriptive instead of at times being de descriptive. 
Not every narrative is prescriptive. We must understand that. And I would argue here what we see in verses 7 through 12 is a descriptive passage with timeless principles that we can apply. If you read everything as prescriptive, the next time you get bit by a viper, just throw it in the fire and sit there. You wouldn't do that, though Paul did. No, it is a descriptive passage. So, we must understand here, this is descriptive. But this is the point. Remember this. We aren't the original audience to this writing. It is, a, it is the believers in Rome to whom Mark is writing to. And so what is it that Mark is trying to convey to these believers here? What is the point of this passage that Mark wants his original audience to understand? Remember this, his audience most likely never met Jesus. No, they never met Jesus. They were never eyewitnesses. So what Mark is doing here for his original audience, speaking to those who never met Jesus, who were never eyewitnesses, he's telling them that they can trust and rely on the testimony of the apostles who were eyewitnesses. So that they then will be, and they can take and trust and rely on the testimony, and as a result, they are faithful ear witnesses to this testimony. And then they can practice some of these timeless principles of ministry. So what we must understand here, and the main point even of this morning's message, is that for which the original audience would have gotten. You are to trust the apostolic word, which is the New Testament. You can trust this message. You can trust the message of the apostles who did not make up a clever story after a resurrection, but who were directly sent by Jesus, who were eyewitnesses to the resurrection of Jesus, who everything that they said was absolutely true, and they gave their lives. No one's going to die for a lie. They gave their lives for this. This is a trustworthy message. And then we are to live as faithful ear witnesses to the things in which we would read and see, carrying on the mission as well. So notice here in verses 8 and 9, the first order of Jesus' practicum here for the apostolic mission was prohibitions. Look again at verse 8. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except he allows for three items. What are the three items that Jesus allows? A staff, sandals, and a tunic. We notice here what what Jesus is saying here is take the absolute minimum. Take the minimum. Take a staff to help you walk through the hill country of Galilee. It will be as an aid for you. Take sandals to protect your feet as you carry the message. How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. A tunic for your basic warmth and covering, but nothing more. Nothing more. Three items we see prohibited on this mission that they are to endeavor, take on. He says, no bread, no bag, no money. Think about their reaction even hearing this. Wait a minute, Jesus, no food? How are we going to survive? No bag to even carry the most basic of necessities that we might need? So I've got, no, I've got no bag to carry anything. I've got no food for anything. And now I can't, even, I can't even wrap some copper coins in my belt? You want me to take absolutely nothing on this mission, Jesus? Oh, this is a mission, all right. 
This sounds to me like a death mission. This appears to be a suicide mission that you want us to go on, Jesus. None of us are ever going to come back. There are six groups of us going out. Survival's probably not even a reality. Jesus is teaching them a valuable lesson, is he not? He's teaching them a lesson that money cannot buy. The less you have, the more you rely on someone else's provisions. God's provision for them. In the minimal provisions that they are to take, it is to show them that their provision is to come from God. It's hard to proclaim a message of trust and reliance when you're towing a U-Haul full of stuff behind you for your own creature comforts. This is a showstopper for many here in the United States. Absolutely. Here's the principle. Stuff ties you down. Absolutely. One reason why I think we don't live on a sense of mission is the fear that we might actually be called to go. But what about my stuff? What about my belongings? What about the building of my empire? What about my little fiefdom? What about my kingdom? What about my bank account? How is that going to affect my bottom line? You know, oftentimes when we travel, we might have to travel for work or vacation, we stay in a hotel, right? Why don't you bring everything in your house with you when you go to the hotel? That sounds crazy. Why would I do that? Because you're not staying there forever, are you? It's only temporary. Oftentimes, I think we treat this life like we're here forever. Our citizenship, yes, is on earth, but it is in heaven. We are strangers and aliens. Wait, now you say, wait a minute, wait a minute. I thought you just said we should read this as descriptive, not prescriptive. Just because Jesus gave this command to the apostles, that doesn't necessarily apply to me, right? Sure. Jesus calls you to die. Jesus actually causes, calls his followers to die. Matthew 16, 24. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Not much room for the accumulation of many things. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. What will it profit a man if he gains the whole world but forfeits his soul? What does it profit to be the CEO of a Fortune 500 company? What are you going to take with you when you go? Christian, Jesus comes and bids you to come and die. He's, in that passage, he says, die to your passions, die to your possessions, die to your pursuits, and make your greatest passion knowing him. See him as the greatest possession you will ever have. He is the pearl of great price. And your pursuit is to know him, to serve him, to follow him, to die for him, that you might live for him. He is the chief pursuit in life. Now, we must understand here also, it is not bad to have things. I'm not saying that. It's bad when things have you. That's the point. The simple life is an attractive life. We must be willing to give up and to use what we have for the advancement of the mission, of the proclamation of the kingdom of God. What do you have that you have not received? The sent ones are the trusting ones in their minimalist provisions that their faith might rest in God who provides. But we would notice here from minimalist provisions that Jesus tells them to mixed receptions that they will receive. 
We've already seen this as we're tracking along through the Gospel of Matthew. Jesus has had mixed receptions all the way through, from Nazareth to Capernaum, to down with the, 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 the garrison man and to the people who love their pigs. Jesus has witnessed it all. And like any good teacher and good master, he tells his followers exactly how it is. This is what you will face. He's not trying to sell them a bill of goods and say, it's going to be good. It's going to be easy. It's going to be worthwhile. It's going to give you great purpose in life. He's saying, no, you're going to meet mixed receptions. It'll be the greatest of times and it'll be the worst of times. That's the reality of ministry. Not everyone will like you. You will also find those that will sacrificially give of themselves for you. You can experience two responses. And that's what Jesus tells us here. In verses 10 and 11, the first response we see is hospitality. Hospitality, verse 10. When you enter a house, stay until you depart from there. When, in Jewish custom, first century, when they would bring somebody into their house, that was the affirmation of the person, their message, their teaching. And so, in hospitality, which is huge in the first century culture, to let someone into your house is to affirm them as a true teacher, is it is to affirm their ministry and their message. And Jesus tells them, the apostles here, to stay until you depart from there. Not depart from the house, but he's saying depart from the region. Depart from the area in which you are ministering in. Notice here when Jesus says, when you enter a house, implying that they will be received by many as messengers in his name. People will hear this message. People will hear the gospel. They will respond favorably. They will receive Christ by faith. They will repent of their sins. They will respond in saving faith, and they will welcome you. We must notice here, although rejection is a reality of ministry, so is reception. Let's not paint one totally negative side of it without understanding the positive too. You will be received as a Christian, as a follower of Christ, as a herald of Jesus by God's people. So when you enter a house, that is the warm reception. Then he says, stay until you depart from there. Here he is telling his people to accept hospitality. Sometimes it's easier for us to give than it is to actually receive. There's a gift in learning how to receive well as there is even in giving well. Accept hospitality from others, but don't abuse it. Don't abuse it. What Jesus is telling his disciples here, his ministers, is do not go from house to house seeking to take advantage of the goodness and kindness of my people. Learning how to accept the positive receptions of others is just as important as learning to accept the negative. Do not let the negative make you bitter. Do not let the positive make you proud. So what are we to do with this passage even here, this command from Jesus? I would submit to you that many charlatans and televangelists for-profit preachers and churches that peddle a health, wealth, and prosperity message have completely disregarded this passage of Scripture. They have abused this. They have misused hospitality, kindness, and the generosity of God's people. There's been great abuse of young, innocent lambs. We are not to abuse hospitality, but to use hospitality. You will be received by some as a herald of Christ, but also the reality, verse 11, you will meet hostility. You will not always get a warm reception. You will not always get people that will listen to you. 
Many of you have gone to the rescue mission. Many of you have gone to various avenues out on the basketball court. You've gone and been a public witness for Jesus, and you've gotten mixed responses through the years. Some will listen. Most won't at times. It even happens when you stand up and preach in church. What are you to do? You're to recognize this is a reality. You are to recognize that this is a reality. You go and try to share the gospel with one of your neighbors, and they won't want to hear it. Their hostility might be inward. They're not going to outwardly show it, but inside they are hostile. And we notice here in the, hospita- in the hostility that the rejection of others leads to the departure. This is what Jesus says. And if any place will not receive you, and they will not listen to you when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. It's time to depart. Rejection leads to departure. He's telling telling his apostles here, do not forcefully try to persuade people. You can't make anyone believe. You can't make anyone receive the gospel. You can't force feed it down someone's mouth. You've never converted anybody. I have never converted anybody. God converts people. The Spirit takes the heart of stone and replaces it with the heart of flesh. You can't do anything. Regeneration is a work of God outside of us. What are we to do? Be faithful in the proclamation. And if they won't receive you, it is time then that you move, to, you move on. This is important to understand. It is very hard to plow soil in a parking lot. This is principally true in all ministry contexts. So what should we do with this? Invest in the willing. Invest in those who will listen and pray for the unwilling that the unwilling might become willing. But pour yourself into the teachable, the hungry, the sincere. Jesus says here, shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. First century Jews, when they would travel into Gentile territory, as they would make their way back into the the Holy Land, they would shake the dust, they would clean their sandals off, so as to not bring even Gentile soil into the Holy Land. They wouldn't want to defile the, the land that they walked on, the ground that they walked on, with the paganism from outside of there. And so the disciples certainly knew what Jesus meant when he says to shake off the dust, the dust from your feet. But it's important to understand to reject a messenger of Jesus is to reject Christ himself. To persecute one of Jesus' messengers, one of Jesus' people, is to persecute Jesus himself. Saul's traveling down the Damascus road with letters. And what is he intending to do? He's going to persecute Christians, those who are faithfully sharing the gospel, living out the truth of Jesus, followers of the way. And Jesus appears to him and says, Saul, Saul, why are you doing bad things to these people? No, he doesn't say that. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is a dangerous thing to persecute one of Jesus' people. I think even here of the shaking the, the dust off of the feet, I wonder if the apostles were alive today and they would walk into many churches. What type of reception would they receive? I would argue that many churches in the West, many churches in America, that they would be walking right out the doors, shaking the dust off their feet, because many churches today are more about entertaining goats than feeding sheep. And if the apostles came, they too would be rejected. 
So what we can understand here from this mixed reception that, they are, that Jesus tells them that they're going to receive, and we understand that we too will receive, remember this, Christian, wherever life takes you, you will experience mixed receptions. You will find a warm welcome at times. Cherish those times. Remember those times, especially when you get that cold rejection. This is a reality of ministry. It's a reality of faithfulness. Be encouraged. So, they receive these two things from Jesus. Take nothing and expect mixed receptions. How did they respond? What is the response we see of the apostles? Verses 12 and 13. Nobody bailed. Think about it. Nobody bailed. Verse 12. So they went out. We might read that really fast. That's a big deal. They've been told all these things. Take nothing. Take the bare minimum. It's going to be tough. Some people are going to love you. Others are going to hate you. You're going to be rejected. Do you still want to do this? He said, sign me up. There's no greater thing that you in this life can give your life to. As John even prayed, that we would be ambassadors and understand that we are ambassadors for Christ. There is no greater mission. And we are facing a task unfinished. We are carrying the torch. The baton is in our hands. Our time is now. So they went out. Two by two. No doubt nervous, but empowered. Ready. They were to, what we notice here is they were obedient. They showed their obedience to the sender. So they understood the mission. They took minimal provisions. They were ready for mixed receptions in order to have the message proclaimed. The master's mission is accomplished through the message of his ministers, the message of the faithful. And notice their their message. They went out, they proclaimed, they heralded, they preached that people should repent. What is their mission? Their mission was to address the universal human need, repentance, repentance towards God. Although times have changed and we are standing 20 centuries later from this right here, the human universal need has not changed. It has always been the same. And it is repentance towards God. What do we mean by that? Quite literally, when we think of the word repentance, this this sense here of be converted, to turn from sin and turn to Christ, this is their message. Their message was the Messiah has come. We are, we, we are here. We are, with, we are with them. The kingdom of God is among us. So they would look at people and say, turn from your unbelief. Turn from your rejection of God. Turn from your wayward religion. Turn from trying to earn God's favor through law keeping. Turn from trying to live a good life that will not add up. Turn from thinking you are good enough. Turn from your morality and look to Jesus. What is our greatest need? Our greatest need is the exact same thing. You see, the issue that we face is not that we have done bad things. We've all done bad things. But the issue that we face, every single one of us, whether it's the 14-month-old in the nursery or the oldest saint among us even now and everywhere in between, the issue that we face is that we are sinners. And the scary thing is I can say that and it doesn't bother some of you. That you would not even bat an eye 
It's not that we've done some bad things in our lives and we need a little bit more grace and direction in our life. No. Apart from the saving grace of God, we are all monsters of iniquity. We deserve the wrath of a holy and just God for our crimes against him. That's the predicament all of humanity is in. This is why Jesus sends the apostles. This is why Jesus is sent in the first place. Because apart from Jesus Christ, all of humanity is on a one-way trip to hell, and they're moving very fast. Therefore, our greatest need in this life is not purpose. It is not a sense of belonging. It is not a nice community of people that come together on Sunday. No, our greatest need in this life is reconciliation with a holy God. It is not a sense of belonging. It is not being with nice people that make my life better. No, our greatest need is not even religion. It is reconciliation. And it comes through the gospel of Jesus Christ. It comes through the apostolic message that they shared. Jesus Christ, very God of very God, one with the Father from eternity past, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Through the, through the virgin birth, the miracle of incarnation, where all of God is is. is In union with man, he is 100% man, 100% God, so that he can take on the penalty for all of mankind and discharge it as the God-man. So he lives a perfect, sinless life. Jesus Christ, our righteousness, comes for the joy that was set before him endures the cross and doesn't die because Jews think he's a blasphemer and Romans think he is a fool. He dies because sinners need atonement. Sinners need someone who can stand in their place and discharge their sin and still live to talk about it. That's what we have in Jesus Christ. That's the gospel, that he came, he lived, he died, he was raised from the dead, the perfect God-man seated at the right hand of the Father, so that all who will come to him by faith and believe in him will be reconciled with a holy God. It's Paul Washer who asked the question, he says, what is the scariest truth in all of the Bible? And his answer is this, that God is good. What does a good God do with unholy, miserable sinners? You say, well, he forgives. Certainly he forgives. Absolutely. God is one of loving kindness. He abounds in steadfast love and mercy, showing steadfast love to thousands, forgiving iniquity, transgressions, and sins, but who will by no means let the guilty go unpunished. You see, God cannot just forgive your sins and erase them. Someone must pay for them. And it will either be you in the life to come or they were nailed to the cross. That's it. That's the point. This is the message of reconciliation. So that God would take the sin, our sins, and put it on him who knew no sin so that we would become the righteousness of God. You are reconciled to a holy God, not because you live a better life. You are reconciled to a holy God because Jesus lived the perfect life. And you are justified, you are declared righteous, just as if I never sinned by faith in him, in him alone. So that even if you were to die today and stand before God and he says, why should I let you into my heaven? You cannot say because I believed, because I trusted because, because I went to church, because I read my Bible, because I did all these things. I went to prayer meeting. I even prayed. No. 
The only response we can give is because he died for me, because of him, because of what he did for me, because of the righteousness of Jesus. I'm looking outside of myself to another. And my only hope in life and death is Jesus Christ and the life that he lived. This is the message of the apostles when it says that people should repent. It is to turn from their ways, turn from the sin that nailed Christ to the cross and look to him by faith. Romans chapter 5, verses 5 and 10. For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Jesus never died for a perfect person. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare to even die. But God showed his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, th- since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God? When Jesus hung on the cross and he cries out, it is finished, paid in full, he took the cup of the wrath of God, do our sin, and he drank every last drop of it. And he turns the cup over and says, it is done. Therefore, Christian, You can look at the scriptures, and when you read, there is no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus, you can trust that completely. There is no wrath left for you because it was exhausted on the cross. Even in your sinfulness, even in your backsliding, there is no wrath left for you. So run back to Jesus. Always be running to Jesus. For while we were enemies, God reconciled us to himself by the death of his son. How much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life? This is our greatest need, is to be reconciled with a holy God. A message of repentance without reconciliation is no gospel. It is an incomplete gospel. It is just the preaching of Jonah. No, we need repentance That's your negative. That's what you turn from. And we need reconciliation. That's the positive. And it's a complete gospel. You turn from your sin. You're reconciled to a holy God. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. The apostles, though there's no apostolic succession, the apostles handed the baton off that we have received this message of reconciliation. And what are we to do? We are to go with it as well. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors of Christ. God making his appeal to us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. And the gospel in one verse, for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is the apostle's message. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is our message. So from the universal need being cut off from God, this need of repentance and reconciliation, they would also turn in verse 13, and they would address the immediate need the immediate felt need of the people. They cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. Here we recognize the special authority given to the apostles. 
Their power, as I said even earlier, was to authenticate the message. Remember where we are in redemptive history. To authenticate the message to bless the people. And the mission here is accomplished through meeting the physical needs of those they ministered to. You see, authentic gospel ministry is word and deed. It is not just word and it is not just deed. We can fall into the pit on both sides when we do that. We are, to, meet, we are to, to address the spiritual and even physical needs. If you take verse 13 alone, all you have is Protestant liberalism. You have social gospel. That failed a long time ago. If you have verse 12 alone, you have preaching but not pastoring. You have proclaiming but not practicing. We are to put feet to our message. And we know that the mission was accomplished because we saw in verse 30, the apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. So, what are some things that we could take away as we think about this passage? I'm sure we've already received many. Remember this, none of us are apostles, but we are all disciples. We too have been called into this battle. We too have been given this mission. We stand on the shoulders of giants, men and women, Great and small throughout the years of church history. This is just our time now. The baton is in our hands. We have been called upon in this very hour for such a time as this. If the Lord tarries and the pages of church history are still written, what will be said of this generation? Of this time? Are we too busy accumulating our stuff? Or are we willing to be sold out For the gospel of Jesus Christ. You see, dearly beloved, God has saved you to send you. It's that simple. It might be across the world. It might be to your backyard. It might just be to where you are. But you are on mission. We are to live on mission. The time is now. The mission remains the same. And what is this mission? To make Christ known. So here's your four P's of application. Pack lightly prepare for mixed responses, proclaim and practice authentic gospel ministry, and pour yourself into others who will do the same. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed through the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, I pray that you would forgive us for complacency, for apathy, apathy to the hurting around us, to the many souls that are dying, to the many who do not worship you in our communities, in our homes, in our state. Father, I pray that you would renew in us a vigor and a zeal to make your son known, to take this gospel to where it has not been before, whether it be in our workplace for some of us even at our kitchen tables. Father, I pray that we would be faithful witnesses, understanding the task before us. Lord, that we would not let the things of this world cling to us. Lord, that we would be ready for whatever response people will give us, only that we might accomplish the mission that you have set before us. Help us, Lord. Strengthen us. Encourage us. And may we ever and always and only Be looking to Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen.